We're just going to take a second here and look at our mission and our vision that defines us as a church and defines what our aspiration is by the grace of God. Our mission as a church is to lead people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. When we talk about leadership, we mean this isn't just a passive thing. It means something we're taking responsibility for as disciples of Jesus Christ to take initiative in the lives of others. We want to have an an active and redemptive presence in their life. So we're trying to lead them to something. We're trying to lead them to a growing relationship. In other words, if if someone uh, is a friend of ours or in, in our sphere of influence and they don't know the Lord, well, that's the first step. We want them to come to meet Jesus. They know the Lord, we want to encourage them along in their discipleship. If they're mature in the Lord, we want to encourage them to spend every resource they have for the kingdom of God. And so we want to lead them into this growing relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what we're uh, about. That's our mission here as a church. And then the second part here, the vision, we've talked about this before. This is the particularization of mission. Mission is, in a sense, what all churches are supposed to be doing, right? We kind of put our specific language to it, but this is what the church is supposed to do in terms of mission. Vision is how we particularize it here in this particular place. And what we envision for Bethel Church is this, that we would be a caring community. A caring community. In other words, we want this to be a place where people belong. They belong to one another. Not just a place we attend, not just a place we get information, because quite frankly, you could do that a lot more efficiently at home, in your pajamas, Dialing in the podcast of your, to- your choice. This is about belonging to one, another, to one another as a family of God. We, want, we envision a caring community that equips. In other words, we want to train you and equip you to be all that you are supposed to be as a disciple and a follower of Christ. Uh, the church is not going to do all of the programs to deliver everything that needs to, uh, to happen in this world. But we want to equip you and train you to be the people who execute these kinds of things. And we want to equip the whole family. Uh, as you know, as you look around the church and you see a lot of youth in this church, Bethel Church is a family church. Uh, we want to equip the whole family, not just segments of it, but the whole family for this last thing to follow Jesus. In the end, it is about discipleship. So this is our mission. This is our vision. And I'm going to start pressing into this a little bit more. In fact, next week, I'm going to give you a, a warning or an encouragement. Next week... I am going to be walking around with a coffee card, and uh, I'm going to ask random people if they can state this, what the mission of the church is, what the vision of the church is, and if you can get it right and get it back to me, we might even apply Awana standards here, it'd be like no errors and one help, and you know, (laughs) these kinds of, we'll see about that. And if you can get it right and state it back to me, then I will give you that coffee card. Uh, But I want you guys to know this. This is important. This is what keeps us on track and keeps us together. So uh, I want to remind you of that. If you're new, I want to let you know that's the environment you've walked in this morning. That is our ethos and our identity. So now let's pray and uh, we're going to dive into the word of God. We're going to study the second half of John chapter 14, we started the first half last week, and we're going to finish part two this week. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you for what you have created in us, Um, not just a people, but you have redeemed a sinful, rebellious lot of people. 
those who have turned their backs against you and you have called us out of that and you have called us to yourself to be your church. You use these wonderfully beautiful and intimate words to describe us. Your bride, your children. You love us deeply and we know that and we're grateful that you have called us to yourself and you've called us to a loving, intimate relationship with you. Thank you for your grace in our lives um, such that we can be the church, we can be your family. And we want to be the very best version of that we can be, Lord. So now we commit ourselves to the study of your word, to worshiping you through the study of the revelation of God. I pray that you would bring to mind what we need to hear, that you would illuminate the truth Uh, that we need so desperately. I pray that you would, um, God, help us take what might distract us or what might be obstacles and allow us to bring all of that to you such that you could um, break through those things, that we might hear you and hear what you would say to us in the deepest places we need to hear it. So help us now as we continue to worship you through the study of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So take out your Bibles, please. We're in John 14. We're going to start at verse 15. And um, I'll give you just a very, very lightning quick recap of where we've been. Last week we talked about the idea that Jesus was, had just said six discouraging things to his disciples. Basically the idea that he was getting ready to leave, that he was going to be killed. Uh, all kinds of uh, bad things that they weren't hoping for was about to happen. And so he starts chapter 14 basically with the big purpose of trying to comfort them, trying to encourage them in spite of all they've heard. And so the first real theme for the, for the first half of the chapter is this, be comforted. And then he goes through and gives them all kinds of reasons why. Be comforted, I'm returning for you. I've made a way for you. He's reconciled them and, and, and he himself is the way that they could be brought to the Father through his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And then we saw that um, Jesus himself taught that he has shown us the Father. And those strangely mysterious words, if we have seen him, we've seen the Father. Uh, and if you can synthesize that in one crisp you know, sentence or paragraph, let me know. Because let's, we'll publish a book together and uh, we'll both be wealthy. Because I don't know how to quite synthesize that. But somehow... Jesus makes it clear that if we have seen him, we've seen the Father. He encourages us, too, that we will do even greater works than he has. And we talked about the fact that that was specifically a reference to evangelism. We saw uh, Peter even do that at Pentecost when he led thousands to the Lord in a single message. And then finally, he assures us with, again, the challenging and encouraging paradox that God answers God-honoring prayer. And so that's the comfort and the encouragement that Jesus was giving his disciples in the midst of their trouble and discouragement when they found out that he was leaving. And as we move into the second half of the chapter, I think the second theme that I would draw out is is this. Jesus is in a sense calling us to be committed. Be committed. Uh, Up to this point in the gospel, Jesus has spoken about his love for the disciples. And he's demonstrated it. He's shown it very clearly. And he's instructed them to be loving towards one another. And again, even shown them how to do that. But now actually for the first time in the gospel, for the first time, he begins to instruct them on the importance of loving him. And he describes not only what that looks like, but he he actually describes and and shows them how they are to 
to go about and actually do that. And so verse 15 says this, If you love me, keep my commands. If you love me, keep my commands. Now I'm going to warn you up front here. I'm going to spend a ridiculous amount of imbalanced time this morning on this point. Uh, there's lots more that happens after this, but I really think this is the thing that we need to understand, we need to come to grips with. And so I'm just telling you at the outset, the sermon is weighted heavily this morning on the front end of this. One of the things that's absolutely clear um, throughout this passage, not just right up front, is the idea that love for God and obedience are inextricably linked together. Another way that I have said this to you in the past, if you'll remember this, is that I've told you that obedience is God's love language. Maybe you remember that. Uh, Gary Chapman, who is an author, wrote a book uh, years ago, and many of you, probably most of you know it, called The Five Love Languages. And it was a book primarily, at least the, the first one, uh, a, a book about marriage. And as the theory goes in the book, there are, that each person, that there are sort of five natural love languages that we, we each have. In other words, each of us feels love in one of five uh, sort of common ways. And the five that he lists out are service, quality time, physical touch, words of affirmation, and gifts. And, and sort of as the theory goes, we all have this primary way in which we feel love. And uh, the temptation, of course, is that when we try to show love to someone else, especially maybe our spouse, the temptation is we try to show love to them in the way that we most naturally receive love, which is sometimes a big miss. In other words, I could lavish my wife with gifts. And what she could be saying or not saying is, I need to hear words of affirmation from you. And so that's kind of how this, this book goes. Now, this isn't a sermon about marriage. I'm just using this point here because I think it's a good illustration. In the scriptures, God makes it very clear to us that obedience is his love language. In fact, four times in this passage, it is, it is stated, which we'll get to in just a minute here. But God has made it absolutely clear that our love for him is inextricably tied and linked with obedience. Uh, I want to show you something here. Last week, after, the, uh, after church, uh, Gus was in my office and we were talking and he saw this picture of a book. Uh, this is a book by Paul Copen. And it's, uh, yeah, Is God a Moral Monster? And I don't know if you can maybe recognize the picture if you think you might get it here. But this is a picture of basically the story of Abraham and Isaac. Where God had asked him to sacrifice his own son. And it's the story about Abraham's obedience and his trust in God and the difficulty of that. So Aiden asked, or excuse me, Augustine asked about this. And, and so here I am trying to tell my own son the story of how God had asked a dad to sacrifice his son as an act of obedience. Gus's eyes were pretty big. <laughs> and I'm, I'm talking through that and I'm sharing this as, as delicately as I can. And I, I was sort of even embarking on this story with fear and trepidation. But as I got through it and got to the end, it was really kind of sweet to be able to say 
that God provided, right? Exactly what was needed at the last minute. He intervened. He provided what was necessary. Um, He basically challenges Abraham with the question of, do you love me more than your own son? Do you trust me? Do you trust my promises more than you trust even your own progeny and seeing descendants coming through him? Um, And we find that he was willing to obey and he was willing to even sacrifice his own son. And you know the story. At At the very last minute, the Lord stops him and he says, now I know that you fear God. And I think there's a point for us in that and that is whatever we love and whatever we trust and anything that threatens our love or our trust more than our love and trust in God, God will test. God will expose. And we will have to continually come back to the point, as Abraham did, to say, I surrender. I surrender even this good thing, which I tend to cling to more than you. And that's, that's the story here uh, that we find in Abraham and Isaac. But it's, it tells us, in other words, this teaching of Jesus isn't new here in the New Testament. Obedience is the love language of God has been that way since the beginning. Loving God and obeying God are inextricably linked. And the pairing of obedience and love for God, even in chapter 14, shows up four different times. Look, look at the chapter with me. In verse 15, in verse 21, in verse 23, and then all the way down in verse 31, there's even a slightly different twist on it. And the last, the last expression there, this is interesting because Jesus says that he shows his love for the Father by doing exactly what the Father commands him to do. Four different ways uh, it is brought out by Jesus in this particular passage. Now I want to ask you a question, and that's this. Uh, the question of love and obedience can be a little bit like the chicken and egg question, right? Which comes first? Which comes first? Uh, Do we obey God in order to generate a love and affection for him? Or do we, does our love for him generate obedience? Which way is that supposed to work? Now I'll offer a caveat at at the front end here before I get real um, sort of provocative and challenging with you. Uh, to some degree, it's both, right? We don't get a pass on obedience uh, because it's not driven by the heart. We're to obey, and sometimes the heart follows the act of obedience. But here's what I'm going to really press this morning. I think that more than anything, what we need to pursue is a heart that genuinely loves the Lord and has a deep affection for Him and an obedience that flows out of that. And I think the problem in so many churches and so many Christian homes and around the world is that we, we're really good at focusing on the externals. Christian churches and families are often good at producing outward conformity, looking good, or even doing good. But the reality is the inward transformation of the heart such that one genuinely loves God and has a deep affection for him is a lot harder to find and a lot harder to see and a lot harder to achieve. And I think what Jesus is speaking about here is an obedience that is driven by our love for God and that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
And when it's done in this way, our obedience is a joy and not a burden, which the Apostle John speaks of in 1 John. It's not simply a matter of self-will and determination and rolling up our sleeves and having great personal discipline. That's just outward performance. But I believe that what God really wants is our hearts, the core and the center of who we are, that we would have a deep love and affection for him. And that that when that is in place, obedience just naturally flows out of us. Jesus regularly confronted the religious leaders of the day, which I will tell you, as much as we knock the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they were better at discipleship than you are in terms of the externals. And what Jesus called them was whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they were polished and clean and radiant and beautiful looking, and inside they were dead men. And Jesus wants live hearts that love him and have a deep affection for who he is. Uh, Merrill Tenney, a scholar, has said it this way, obedience is the consequence of love. Obedience is the consequence of love. And so, Bethel Church, what I want to really press in on you this morning is that our first priority is to develop and to facilitate and foster a deep love and affection for God. It sounds so simple, but let that sink in. A deep love and affection for God so that our obedience will be the natural outflow of our love for him. Um, One of the ways I think we need to do this better is in the way that we approach the scriptures. Uh, The scriptures understand are God's revelation of himself. That's the primary aim of them. He's saying, hello world, here I am. God, from the beginning till now, And he's revealing himself through human history and his interactions with his people. And we need to approach the scriptures in such a way that we would learn about this God. About who he is. His nature, his character, his purposes. And one of the great mistakes of the church in my lifetime is its overemphasis on practical application. I know that sounds like heresy. But stick with me here. One of the great mistakes is our overemphasis on the practical application of the word of God because what we have done is we have forsaken it as the revelation of God to his people and we have taken it as simply a self-help book. And we have created, instead of a people for God, we have created humanism with a little bit of God on the side. We have forsaken theism. That this world and everything about it is about God and for God and honors him. It is for him. We've made God a little bit of a part of our life. Looking for a little bit of application here and there. Instead of diving into the word of God as his revelation about who he is. His greatness and his goodness. His love and his mercy and his nature. Such that we would love him for who he is. And then very naturally do what he wants us to do. Again, so I think there's this hierarchy of obedience in our minds. What we tend to do, we hear obedience and love for God are linked. And so we go, well, that's it. I must obey. I must crack down, roll up my sleeves and get real aggressive. And self-discipline's got to rise to the surface. I've got to try harder, work harder, do better. I've got to obey, got to obey, got to obey. And then we hope in the back of our minds, maybe the Spirit will show up and help me a little bit. That would be great. I think the scriptures say something about that. 
And in the end, we hope, I, I hope somewhere after all of this, God will know that I love him or maybe even a little bit of a kernel of love will grow for him in my own heart. We invert it. We need to develop a natural love and affection for God because we have approached the word of God and all of his revelation to understand who he is. To know God is to love God. We're promised the spirit will help us in this. He will reveal the truth of God to us. And yes, we apply personal discipline and obedience even in difficult times. We can't pass on that, but it will come naturally from a heart that is in love with the transcendent and living God. Listen to the way Jesus says it. This is Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. It will sound a little bit different because I'm actually reading it from Eugene Peterson's rendering uh, of of this passage. Uh, I'm committed to teaching through the NIV. You guys know that, but somehow Eugene Peterson has put some words to this passage that helps it come alive to me. This is what it says. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Isn't that good? Well, I told you I was going to focus quite a lot on this point this morning here. Love for God and obedience to God are linked. We're also encouraged, even as Jesus is calling us to a level of commitment here, we're encouraged that we're not helpless in this. We're not helpless, but in fact, we are empowered for loving obedience. We have a resource, and that, of course, is the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 16. He says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you. And be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Now I want to just tell you a few things here that, uh, about the Holy Spirit that Jesus uh, makes, makes us aware of. First of all, he is called an advocate. The Holy Spirit is an advocate. The, word, the Greek word that Jesus uses is parakletos. And translated in English in some of your Bibles, it might be comforter or counselor uh, or advocate as the NIV gets it. It means literally one who is called alongside or called to our aid. Um, And I really think that probably the best modern translation is advocate as the NIV has it. Uh, The other translations, comforter and counselor, I think they were probably good once upon a time. But the English language changes. You know, so that what those words might have meant once upon a time, they don't necessarily mean to a developing and changing culture. And so when we hear the word counselor, we may not think of legal counsel. We may tend to think of a camp counselor or uh, the counselor I go to to deal with my mom issues or whatever. And so we kind of miss it. Comforter, we tend to think of Hallmark cards, quick pep talk from a coach or something like that. And so in a sense... The modern language would kind of skew us to see it as uh, too soft. In secular Greek literature, this same word was used to describe a lawyer, an advocate in the court of law, who would come alongside and argue for you and advise you. They would defend you. They would even be a witness for you. And, And that is what Jesus is communicating about the Holy Spirit. He is an advocate for us, one who works powerfully 
on our behalf. The other thing that he tells us here about the Holy Spirit I think is interesting. Notice he says that the Holy Spirit is another advocate. Do you see that? Another advocate. And this, the Greek word behind this translated, or the Greek word is alon, which when translated means another of the same kind. Another of the same kind. And so I think it sort of begs the question, wait a minute, who is our first advocate? If Jesus is promising, I'm going to send another one, well, who was the one we already had? And the answer is Jesus Christ. The only other time the Apostle John uses this word parakletos is in reference to Jesus. In his epistle in 1 John chapter 2, 1, he says this, My dear children, I write to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. And there again, the order is preserved. We have been provided not just a lawyer or a counselor. We've been provided a whole legal team. We have an advocate who's not some lesser version of God, not playing on the JV team. But he is co-equal, co-essential, co-substantial with God. God the Holy Spirit. And so this is one of those passages that shows us that he is in no way inferior, even if we tend to maybe... Think of him as such. And so we find that Jesus is our advocate in heaven, making intercession for us to the Father. The Holy Spirit is our advocate on earth. We're told that he helps us. We're assured that he is with us. We're told that he is with us for just a little bit, forever. I don't even understand how it is that the Holy Spirit is with us forever into eternity. I can't think beyond my, you know, hardly beyond this whole week sometimes. But how it is that the Spirit is with us forever just uh, hurts my head a little bit. We're told the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness to the truth. And that he is living within us. Listen to the words of Jesus again. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you. And be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Now for me this prompts a whole other question and that is this. Why don't we experience more of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives? And I hear that question quite a lot. If the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit is somehow residing within me, has taken up residence within me. And is living powerfully in me as my advocate on par with the way that Jesus advocates for us. Then why don't I experience more of his power in my life? And I'm going to try to show this to you in a bit of a funny and a visual way. And so I have, that's what this is about this morning. When we come to know Christ, when we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. That as he comes into us, we are sealed. We get all of him, all at once, forever. One of the problems, however, is that we do not live in the reality of his indwelling presence. If I can back this up a little bit, will that help you guys on this side? So we have the Holy Spirit, and he is occupying us, and he is resident within us, working powerfully in our lives. But the problem is, 
that we put other things in our lives which, I would say, displace him. Not that he ever leaves, and not that we get less of him, but that somehow he gets less of us. So let me try to show this to you. Maybe it's with our finances. This is not a real credit card, by the way. This is just a little gift card, which has been well spent. <laughs> and this won't show up too much, but you know, maybe in our, in our money and the way we handle possessions, really, we cling to our money as ours. And we don't see it as the Lord's or something entrusted to us. And so that goes in. No big deal. But maybe it starts to get into our possessions a little bit, like our car. It's my car. It's, I like it. It's beautiful. I polish it. It's, you know, we hang out together. I have my special moments in the car by myself where no one can annoy me. And that goes in. Maybe it's work. Always with us. Not something we can leave behind, but instead it takes up a place in our heart such that it's where we feel valued and significant and important. It's, it displaces our sense of calling and our sense of understanding of who we are before the Lord. And so that goes in. We're starting to have some problems here. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's fashion. Maybe we just love clothes. We're clothes horse. We like looking good. We like being stylish. And honestly, it can get a little more of our heart than it ought to. Our recreation, it's not a bad thing. It's healthy, keeps us, keeps us healthy, keeps us living a long time, but the reality is we're a little over the top. Maybe it's our research. I don't know. <laughs> I looted through the kids' rooms this morning and found what I could, and I thought, research, <laughs> research. Someone works at the U, I don't know. But it displaces a little more. Maybe it's our time. We're worried about it all the time. We don't think of what God has called us to. We think of what we want to do. We don't submit it to the Lord. It takes a little more. Nutrition. We try to be nutritious, but really it's become an idol in our life. Ready for this one? Maybe it's sex. I think Ellie was very disturbed this morning when she woke up to find me looting through her Barbie case. <laughs> we don't feel the power of the Holy Spirit in our life because we have some other things that occupy and have taken up residence in our life and they've become more important to us. And so, Maybe it's drinking. We used to be a social drinker once upon a time. As life got harder, it became more important. Couldn't go to sleep at night without it, and now we realize it's got us. We're hooked, and it's there. It's taken a little more of us. Our hobbies. They're taking our time. They're taking our money. They're taking our passion. I could go on and on. You get the idea. It's not that the Holy Spirit leaves us. It's not that he's not powerful. It's not that he's not available. The problem is we have displaced them in our life with other things, even good things, well-intentioned. And what happens is they take more and more of our heart. And the role of the Holy Spirit, while he's there and calling out and asking for our attention and for our affection, he gets displaced. And we don't experience the power of the Holy Spirit because he is crowded out with so many other things.
Well, let's move on to the next point. You're going to have to stay there and try to focus, even with Barbie hanging out here. Jesus promises some great things here. He promises a reunion. In verse 18, he sort of continues with this comfort theme. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and that you are in me and that I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. I feel like I've heard that before. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Now, here is the question. i got to tell you, this was a difficult study for me this week. This was one of those weeks where I had the books piled high, and I was kind of like in a commentator fort in my office here, working through some of this. But when Jesus says the words that I will come to you, what is he referring to? And I was wrestling with that this week. There's, there was actually six different theories on what Jesus is referring to here. And so I sort of humbly and... I say, I, I don't exactly know. I'm not 100% sure what he's referring to. Three of the theories I think are ridiculous. I won't even approach them. Three of them I think are very possible. It could be that he's saying, when he says, I will come to you, that he's referring to the resurrection. Yes, I'm going away. I'm going to disappear. You won't see me for a little while, but I will come to you. Okay? I think that's very possible, particularly his post-resurrection appearances. And I think that's what he's talking about. That's my, but that's the one that I would agree with. Some would say that he is referring to the Holy Spirit. In other words, that his coming to the people will actually be that somehow Jesus, mediated by the Spirit, is coming to his disciples. That's possible. That stretches my mind a bit, but that's very possible. And the other theory is that he's referring to his return to the Perusa when he, becomes, when he comes back to the earth, when he returns to the earth, and that's also very possible. But it seems to me that at the very least, all of it hinges upon the resurrection, and that must happen, and, and that, that is at least the case, and so that's the one that I take. When he says that, uh, you know, that it's good that I go to the Father, and if I don't go, I, can't, you know, I won't be able to send the Holy Spirit to you. So there's a sense in which he must experience death and resurrection and ascension for the Holy Spirit to come to him so that he would send another counselor. We also see him use this phrase here, the world will not see me, but you will see me. And we actually find that in the post-resurrection appearances, Jesus doesn't appear broadly to the world, does he? He appears primarily to his disciples, even if there was a group of them. In fact, the only exception to this that I can find is his resurrection appearance to Saul, who would become Paul. And so I think that supports the point here. Um, he also makes the statement, because I live, you also will live. Well, surely that refers to the resurrection. And he goes on to say that you know that I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. And so once again, I think when the disciples saw the resurrected Christ, they understood that Messiah meant much more than just an earthly political leader. They understood that this person came to usher in and inaugurate the kingdom of God, which wasn't just this little political realm. And that when he returned to the Father, they had a sense that, wow, we're being brought to the Father. We're being reconnected and reunited to the Father. And they would have an understanding of the union that they have with the triune God. And so in other words, the, I think the reassurance that Jesus gives the disciples in his post-resurrection appearance fits right into this theme of comfort, which is really the driving sort of force behind the chapter here. It's on the basis of his resurrection from the dead that the disciples would understand this new level of living that they were privileged to have. 
The other thing we see here is that Jesus promises the day of understanding. And I, I got to tell you, I really look forward to this. I was just remarking to Andrew this morning. There are times, I've had, I had a more difficult time outlining this passage than ever before in my pastoral ministry. And there are times when I look at the scriptures and I think, Jesus, you were not as clear as you could have been. And I know there's times where he's intentionally vague and he's laying the truth out there so that we'd have a greater understanding of it later, but there are, there are passages in this that I just scratch my head and I say, I don't get it. And, and I am sort of find myself agreeing with this guy Judas here, one of the disciples, not Judas Iscariot, when he asks this question, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? I get that. I mean, if I've made a commitment to follow Jesus, and I've left everything behind, and I've forsaken it, I'm hard fast following him, even to my shame and discredit and criticism for some, and he's going to go and die on us, and then disappear, and somehow come back to us, but he's only going to show himself to us and not to the world? I'm going, I could use some vindication here. I would really like an I told you so moment for all the doubters and haters out there. That would be really helpful, Jesus. And so I think this is a good question and a natural one, but I'm amazed how often in Scripture the question of why is unanswered. In fact, Jesus skips right over it, and he gets back to the what. Verse 23, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. I think we've heard that before. My Father will love them. We will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. One of the goals of my study this week was to try to unpack all of this and show you how the triune God works. And, and I got to tell you, in the end, I think rather than seeing each element of this particular passage and each specific work of, of the member of the Trinity, I think what we're meant to see here is how the Trinity works in unison together. In fact, I, I think it's incredibly difficult, maybe impossible, to isolate one person of the Trinity and to identify a unique action that he does alone. What we find here is the cooperation of the triune Godhead, each member working together. When we think of the creation of the world, we've talked about this, we tend to think of, well, the Father created, right? I think that's a temptation for most of us. It has been for me throughout my, my life. The first chapter in the Gospel of John says that nothing exists that has not been created, nothing was created that Jesus did not participate in. And we find even in the first chapter of Genesis that the, the Spirit hovered over the waters, Right? When we think about the teaching ministry of God, I th we tend to think of Jesus. He was the great teacher, right? But he tells us that these words don't belong to him alone, but to the Father. And then he promises that the Holy Spirit will come and teach them and remind them of all things that he has said. When we think of the indwelling ministry of God, we, think of, we tend to attribute that to the Spirit only. But here Jesus says, the Father and I will make our home within you. In other words, we, we cannot disentangle the ministry of the triune Godhead and assign roles and functions to each one. It seems to me that we are meant to see that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are always, always, 
always working together in concerted unity to reconcile man to God. And then Jesus offers us some parting comfort, and I've, I've got to close here. This is what I told Amy. I said, this is going to be an unfinished sermon this week. So much more to say, so much more to look at, but the time is coming to a close. Jesus offers parting comfort here. Verse 27. This beautiful word, shalom, peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now and let us leave. And what I want to remind you with in this last point, there's a whole lot that Jesus says, and I don't have time to unpack it all, but it's the simple reminder of what he says, peace I leave to you, my peace I give to you. What God has been doing since the beginning in all of human history is reconciling men to God. The restoration of shalom, as we have called it. In the beginning, all things were made as God intended it. They were beautiful. They were right. There was a sense of wholeness and rightness. And with our sin, the sin of mankind, we wrecked that shalom. A distortion came into this world. And the consequences of sin began to go from generation to generation, distorting all of the goodness and the peace and the wholeness of God. But by his great mercy and his love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who would take all of the sin of humanity into himself and that through faith in him, our sin could be killed, that we'd be reconciled to the Father and that the restoration of shalom would, would occur. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. Let's pray. Father, we could spend weeks in this passage and still just scratch the surface. But we do find comfort in knowing that your Holy Spirit will continue to teach us. You will witness to the truth and we will understand it as you reveal it to us. Give us a love and affection for you. Give us a heart that goes to your word to understand who you are. Not just to figure out what to do but to know you for your goodness and your greatness such that a living relationship with you would result in joyful, wholehearted obedience. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.